Dog training, even the word training, I think, when you use the word training, you lose your emotional intelligence because you're trying to think, how can I teach a dog a response? And rather when you're with your children, whatever, you're always trying to figure out the, the need behind the behavior. You're trying to use your emotional intelligence to tap into your child's psychology in order to fulfill the need. And why shouldn't dog training be the same? Welcome to the Doggy Dan Podcast Show, helping you unleash the greatness within your dog. Hello and welcome everybody to another Doggy Dan Podcast. And today is, well, it's like every other podcast. I'm so excited. It's always true. I am excited. Today I have Nigel Reed with me and I am excited because... Nigel's a dog behaviorist with 20 years experience. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Dog Guardian. He holds certificates and qualifications in dog training, behavior, animal-assisted therapy, and wolf studies. He's most known from his YouTube channel, where his videos have accumulated over 7.5 million views. And one of the reasons is that in these videos, he demonstrates how to address a range of problem dog behaviors, including aggression to other dogs, pulling on the lead, recall issues, separation anxiety, and many, many more. He's the founder of The Wolf Within, which is a project that teaches young people with behavioral problems how to train dogs with behavioral problems, and he has a goal to help one million dogs in his lifetime. Nigel, welcome to the Doggy Dan Podcast. Hi, Dan. How are you? Great, great. Now, it is so good to have you here. You're in, uh, you're in the UK. I'm in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How's it with you today? Yeah, great. No, no complaints. I mean, the whole lockdown thing has been an issue, but I think you'll agree the dog trainers didn't come out too badly with the whole thing, which seems the massive uprise in dogs. Everybody's getting puppies and wants to know what to do now. Mm. So let's dive into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I believe you're in the UK. Uh, not that it's important, but I don't think you're far from uh, where my grandparents used to live in, East Sussex. Is that correct? Yeah. Whereabouts are they? Uh, they were Hadlow Down and... Um, yeah, I believe that's where you're based. There. Yeah, not too far away at all. Interesting. Yeah, so about me, I studied dog behavior for 20 years. I was yeah. um, just so passionate about it from day one. I was one of these lucky people that got into you know your passion from an early age. And I uh, moved to London from Cornwall, where I'm from. And Cornwall is a little bit like New Zealand. It's really kind of relaxed and calm and loads of beaches and a beautiful area, but not that much going on in winter, which I'm sure was the the same in parts of New Zealand as well. So I moved to London when I was 30 to do dog training full time. And uh, yeah, haven't looked back. Beautiful. So tell us a little bit about um, your training approach. Uh, I believe it's very similar to my own, which is uh, why I'm so excited to chat to you so we can go into depth in uh, into depth regarding how you work with the dog. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so dog training, even the word training, I think when you when you use the word training, you use you lose your emotional intelligence because you're trying to think, how can I teach a dog a response? And rather when you're with your children, whatever, you're always trying to figure out the, the need behind a behavior. You're trying to use your emotional intelligence to tap into your child's psychology in order to fulfill the need. And why shouldn't dog training be the same? So with what you and I do, we're always going, okay, where does that behavior come from? What is that need? And then we fulfill that need rather than just silence the dog through either, 
you know, a purely positive method or a purely negative method. I mean, what we both do as well is positive um, and it's negative at times, but it's never shouting or hurting or intimidating. But most importantly, it is meeting that need. And I remember seeing a lady on television where a dog barked at the door and the dog barked at the door and, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, the dog barks at the door because he's got a security need. He's got a lack of confidence in what he should be doing. And he's got a lack of confidence in his owner as the protector. But in this scenario, the, the, the dog trainer asked everybody to come through the door and give the dog a treat. Now, the dog then got confident with people coming through the door, like a Pavlonian conditioning technique. But that dog was no more confident in what it should be doing and no more confident in the owners as leaders because it was still believed it should run up and, and deal with those issues. Um, but it just was now confident with people coming through the door. And it just fascinates me that there's so many different methods out there. And I think they miss so many miss a trick because they don't think first, what is the dog's need? Wow. So much stuff I could hook into there. Yeah. It's just, it's so true. You've just summed up exactly how I feel and um, why I love what I do. And yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast because I'm thinking, yep, it all makes so much sense. You know, one one of the things you touched on there is, is going below kind of a little bit deeper with our dogs, you know, that why is the dog doing what it's doing rather than, like you say, just, just telling the dog to shut up or get it to be quiet. I can you Can you talk into that a little bit more? Yeah, so when it comes to the dog's needs, like a child, if your child's crying and it's a baby, you, you start figuring out which need it is. And usually it's a physiological need. So do they need changing? Uh, do they need food? Do they need sleep? Do they need burping? Or when a dog's misbehaving as well, we've got a checklist of needs that we can go through. So let's say the dog's barking and we go, okay, is that a physiological need? Is it hungry? Does it need to go to the toilet? Is it a security need? Or is it a dog trying to get attention? And if you don't figure out the need, i.e. it wants to go toilet, but you're thinking, you know, it's just trying to get attention, you ignore the dog, then obviously it's going to go toilet and then toilet on the floor, which isn't going to be good. Or if the dog's toileting because it's actually a security need and you just ignore it, then the dog doesn't feel safe with you. Whereas when it comes to a child, you, you have the English language or any other language you communicate to your child in. You can obviously talk it through and get the need out. Um, but with a dog, you can't. So you have to... You have to have an educated guess of what the need is and then go and fulfill it. So I think it's such a, you know, it's such a beautiful way of, of looking at things that's really holistic and doesn't just address the symptoms of issues. It addresses the disease and that should be the starting point. And I honestly feel if we all started with what are the dog's needs, our methods wouldn't differ so much. But I'm sure your listeners go, God, which way do we turn? Each person's got so many different ideas. They're all saying the other person's wrong. Well, can we all agree that if we figure out the need behind the behavior, that's the first place to start? Yep. I I totally agree with what you're saying. And, you know, and I'll be honest, it, it breaks my heart sometimes because so many dog trainers out there don't seem to really care what the dog truly needs. They just want to stop the problem that the person's got, the human. Mm. So, like you said, dogs barking. How do we stop the dog barking? Now... I think as you touched on it, how do you stop the dog barking? Well, you can just shove food in his mouth so he starts eating. But underlying that, you're saying there's another re there's another need that the dog could still be scared about something. Yeah, and you've got spray collars, shock collars, distraction control, tiring problem behavior out. And again, they're all they're all addressing the symptoms, the barking. It's like, where does that barking come from? Should be should be so obvious by now, but 
the dog world is very political as well. So um, nobody wants to really admit they're wrong. And um, yeah, like I say, if we all start with needs and all think that, then we can all start having the emotional intelligence to figure out what's going on. And emotional intelligence is in two categories, interpersonal intelligence, which is understanding others. And uh, in this case, the dog and intrapersonal intelligence, understanding ourselves. And when I started training dogs, in inverted commas, training, when I started working with dogs, I had this lesson in, in emotional awareness because I really started figuring out what was with the dog and what's with his needs. And then that kind of transferred in my relationships with people. I just, I just, I started mm. listening more. I started, you know, ign um, observing more things and really trying to figure out why people were angry. And even, even my own wife, for example, um, you know, sometimes she's like, I'm going to go at me like, why have you bloody put the, not put the toilet seat? And straight away I'll say, look, what's the real problem, sweetie? Because usually that's not what winds her up. It's normally a knock-on effect of quite a few things. And, you know, like I say, when you can actually figure out what's wrong with my wife or what's wrong with my dog or what's wrong with my child, you can then have more of a productive relationship. Yeah. Uh, that's so true. It's so true. And of course, I want to throw in there and what's wrong with me. Sometimes I've realized, you know, it helps me do the, in, I think you call it the, um, looking at ourselves. Intrapersonal, yeah. And going, why am I so triggered with this thing? Yes. And, and I can look at myself and go, ah, oh. I often say to people in consults, you know, you know, your dog's not perfect and you're not perfect and my wife is not hmm. perfect. And I usually finish with, and I'm not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I love it. I love it. Really, really, really fascinating stuff. You talk about the the disease. Can you talk about the disease that um, that you mentioned earlier? It's, I find that fascinating. Well, I I've kind of boiled down that all problem behaviour, bar health, comes from a lack of confidence in one, two, or three areas, mm -hmm. and they are a lack of confidence either in the owners as the decision makers, the needs providers a lack of confidence in the dog's environment and or a lack of confidence in what they should be doing. Now, if you look at it like that, all problem behavior comes from their bar health. So what we should be thinking every day is how can we boost the dog's confidence in us as leaders in their environment, what they should be doing? Because if a dog had 10 out of 10 confidence in us as leaders in their environment, what they should be doing, they'd have zero behavioral problems. But they, this isn't what we do. We, we, like I say, we distract things, control, tire it out, but we don't go, actually, how can I boost the confidence in you as a leader? So if my dog feels unsafe about something, like I could boost his confidence in his environment with the example I gave you by getting people to come through the door and give the dog a treat. And the dog can go, do you know what? People coming through the door is amazing. I love it. Why did I ever hate it? They're great. They all give me treats. But like I say, the dog's no more confident in what it should be doing because it's still running to the door to, to, to see people. And he's still no more confident in me as a leader because I'm not hardly involved in this equation. So I'm thinking all the time, how can I holistically and simultaneously boost the dog's confidence in those three areas? Because if all problem behavior comes from a lack of confidence in those three areas, and I try to boost the dog's confidence in those three areas, I will eventually address the disease. Brilliant. Love it. So can we take an example maybe of a situation you've been in where you have been working maybe with a dog? around the front door who was a bit aggressive or barky or not behaving and could you talk people through a little bit about the way you work and how and what you did um i guess for those people who don't know the method we haven't touched into it much but we're obviously saying we're not we don't use 
I say we because I, I think I use a similar method, but you're saying you don't use much, um, totally rely much on food treats and you don't tend to use shock collars or spray collars or anything like that. So what would your approach be around the the front door with a barky dog? Is that So everything's language-based. So if our child was scared of the bogeyman in the cupboard, Dan, what would you do? I'd probably show them there's no bogeyman. And, uh... Yeah. That's right. He'd open the cupboard door. He'd show them, look, there's no bogeyman in there. But the dog training equivalent a lot of the time is click, treat and try to distract them from the problem. So anytime my dog's got a problem with anything, wherever he's worried at, I'll let him know first I acknowledge his concerns. And that obviously makes him feel validated because I'm like, yeah, yeah, I understand you're upset. But then I'll go and show him wherever he's barking at, that I'll go and deal with it. And that will boost his confidence in me as a leader. Somebody who can hear him, acknowledge his problems, and then do something about it. Then he might try and get in between me and the door, or he might try and bark. If he tries to get in between me, or he tries to bark, it's the same thing. He's trying to take over, in which case I'll move him back, which will give him more confidence in what he should be doing. I be behind me, I'm leader. And then over time, as he calms, he'll then get more confidence in his environment. So with those three areas, I've just managed to tick them, all three of them off with just one, well, a couple of simple movements by getting in front, claiming whatever he's worried about. He tries to get involved. I move him back or put him in timeout if he's too stressed. And then, um, yeah, keep showing him again and again until he's got it. I mean, the way I look at dog training, and I think we should all look at it, it's like emotional Jenga. And we've got to start at the beginning and start building those blocks. And I think a lot of the time, people aren't building those blocks very securely. Um, They've got all these holes missing in them. And that's the idea of Jenga. You take pieces out and you put it on the top, adding to more stress and weaker foundations. And think of it like this way. If you've got a dog that's got a problem with picnics, um, work backwards and say, well, have I got the foundations in here? I Does the dog pester me with food when I'm sitting, eating on the couch and if no well does the dog pester me with food when I'm sitting on the floor eating food if the answer is no well what would the dog be like if I was sat around with friends uh, on the floor eating food and then ask yourself does your dog walk nicely on a loose lead and then does your dog come back to you when you call them and if you've got all those foundations in there's not very much chance your dog's going to go and run over and start going in people's picnics but there's five you know kind of building blocks we can do before we even take a dog out and have them near picnics but people don't do that I think their their most important thing rather than build this emotional Jenga is exercise and they go a dog needs exercise and it blows out all reason because you stop thinking holistically and you just start thinking with very one kind of single track mind this is what we need to achieve but even if I ask you out for a drink You'd be thinking, okay, you know, how much is it going to cost me? What's my wife doing? You know, how how far have I got to travel? What am I doing tomorrow morning? And that's just going for a drink. That's like four variables. So when you're taking your dog out for a walk or in any scenario, we've got to think of every variable. We've got to be thinking, okay, am I, are the weather conditions right? Does my dog okay with dangers? Is my dog understanding that I'm in charge? And when you put all those blocks together, then you get a better result. Wow. Brilliant. So going going back to the the lack of confidence that the owners have, the environment, uh, and the dog knowing what to do, how 
how does that apply to, can you give us an example maybe of a, a time when you've worked with a dog? Um, let's think of a problem. Dog aggression, why not? Let's go for dog aggression. So a dog that was maybe aggressive to another dog inside the house, like two dogs. Have you worked with dogs fighting together? I presume you have, working together in the house. Yes. Or dogs out on the street. You know, it doesn't matter. But dog aggression. How would you approach for those people listening? I guess I'm asking you kind of an overview of this method, kind of how do you approach it? Do you take the dogs to your house or do you work with people or does that not matter, is it? What, what's going on? I can never boost a dog's confidence in the owners as their leaders um, unless I teach the owners what to do. But yes. sometimes the, the, the dog is in a serious situation and the owner's in a serious situation and they haven't got the time or resources to do it. So yes. it is a service I do every now and then. I've got um, a whole series on YouTube where I take someone's dog on actually, um, yes. an aggressive dog. And what I'm trying to do is show the dog that I'm leader. Now, if the dog has got a problem with other dogs he's got a lack of confidence in someone who's going to protect him he's got a lack of confidence in his environment with other dogs therefore he's got a lack of confidence in what he should be doing so he may be barking and lunging at dogs when he's out now when a dog feels unsafe it's got a defense response of flight freeze or fight however flight freeze and fight is very nuanced so flight running away we all see that but then you've got dogs that walk away or turn their heads and we don't often see that. And because we don't see the subtleties of it, it gets to the more traumatics. Then you've got freeze. But you've got three types of freeze. You've got a submissive freeze where a dog will roll over, um, get on its back, for example. Then you've got an assertive freeze where a dog will go up to the situation. And people never call me for a submissive freeze. They never call me for assertive freeze. But when it gets to an aggressive freeze where they're lunging and barking or it goes to fight, that's when they're calling me. But we've what we've got to do is we've got to understand the prelude in the middle. So the walking away, the turning in the head, the uh, submissive or the assertive. So I'm on that straight away. It's easier to be on the aggressive freeze and fight and flight because, you know, it's so clear. But if you don't address these things early on, it develops into the more dramatics. So once it's developed to the dramatics, the dog is then choosing flight, freeze or fight itself. And usually it's not subtle by this time. Well, to show the dog that I provide for its security needs, I'm leader, boosts his confidence in me as a leader. If he's choosing flight, freeze or fight, then he's providing for his safety needs. So therefore, I choose flight, freeze or fight for the dog. Obviously, I don't fight, but I will be choosing flight or freeze. So if my dog's reactive, I'm more reactive than he is. I react quicker. And then once I've reacted for him X amount of times at a distance that dog feels comfortable at, then eventually he starts giving me that job. And once he gives me that job, I then get closer and closer and closer over time. Sometimes I get too close and he panics. And as soon as he starts panicking, he takes over. And as soon as he takes over again, I take over again immediately. And I judge the distance. So as I'm trying to boost the dog's confidence in his environment, I start off from far away from whatever the threat is. And then I get closer and closer and closer over time. And every time the dog tries to get involved or tries to choose flight or freeze, I choose flight or freeze for them. So by choosing flight, freeze or fight, i.e. providing for my dog's safety needs, I'm then boosting my dog's confidence that I'm as a leader. By starting off from far away from the environment, I'm boosting the dog's confidence in its environment, and then I get closer, closer, closer over time as it gets more confident. And as soon as the dog tries to take control and I take control back, I get the dog more confident what they should be doing. So I keep ticking all of those three areas simultaneously. So a lot of this, 
uh, from what you're saying is about remaining the one that's making the decisions mm. and kind of guiding the dog. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. And, and the decisions don't start, like I was saying, with the emotional Jenga analogy. It never starts off um, in the scenario you are. So, you know, I'm sure you'll agree with this. People don't call us for the problems the dogs have. People call us for the problems the dogs give them. Mm. Yes. And as a result, they miss all the little things where they get, they either label behavior as either good or bad, desirable or undesirable. But I'm never looking at behavior purely just as good or bad. I'm looking at what the motivations of the behavior are. So what's the motivations of a man staring in a shop window? Well, he may be just looking at the stuff or he may be scoping the place out to rob the place. Now, the, 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 the former example is no cause for concern that the latter one is. So when my dog is doing anything, I try and then figure out what need it's trying to do. And even if the behavior looks acceptable, I go, no, no, I can see the motivation there. So then again, once you identify the motivations of behavior, you're, you're so much further on in, in, a, in a process of understanding your dog mm. than what you would be if you just label behavior as good or bad and then either address it or don't address it. Yeah, I think that's a big, big point there that I often say to people that dog owners, we don't seem to recognize when our dogs are becoming stressed until they're so stressed that they're actually reactive, you know. Mm. I have a talk about a scale of 1 to 10 where 10 is a dog in the red zone stressed out and 1 is a dog who's fast asleep. Yeah, yeah, i got the same thing, yeah. And I say to people, you shouldn't really be moving past that kind of, if your dog's at level 5, um, you know, turn around, move the dog out of that situation. But people don't seem to realize until the dog's, what I would say, is about an eight. Mm -hmm. They can't spot the signals that the dog is actually stressed. So, yeah, I, I, I fully agree. We need to wind, the, wind it back and, yeah, better, better understanding of the dog's behavior. And um, it kind of leads me into what, what, can you give us an idea of the happy dog, what the happy dog looks like maybe compared to... Um, the unwanted behaviors or the one un unwanted actions that people don't seem to be able to spot is a is that something you could share with us a little you know what i'm do you know what i'm saying yeah i'd say um one of the mistakes people make a lot of the time is an assertive dog which is actually stacking standing up for itself slightly when it comes to play and it won't back off i'm not always sure that's the happy dog so that mm. dog can look very similar in a scenario where it actually is happy it's really hard to tell um, but one needs to know a little bit of context in the situation. And I've seen so many dogs kind of run up to the other dog and be a bit assertive over the dog and then get into play and then run off, run and do the next one. And the person would say the word, I hate this word. It's always just saying hello. And it's that word just. And uh, I think that we should never say that word in the dog world. There's never, it's never just, just. So a happy dog really is is a as a is a dog with no responsibilities it's you go for a walk it, the dog is walking on a loose lead it stops when you stops it speeds up when you speeds up and it turns when you turns a happy dog is someone who's content in the environment no matter what happens in the environment be that fireworks start going off or uh someone knocks on the door and the dog barks to alert you the, the decision maker, the security provider, and you go and deal with it and they feel instantly reassured because you've proven to them so many times in the past that you're there and you've got their back. A happy dog is a dog that's calm and sleep and is not constantly trying to maneuver you all the time. You know, I, we've got a program called Super Nanny where children just don't stop moving and they're always on and, you know, giving the, yeah. 
the parents, you know, commands and telling them what to do. And they're not happy underneath it all. And, and no. a dog is doing a version of that. So, yeah, uh, that's what I would say. A, a dog that eats all its food, a dog that understands you take care of danger, a dog that comes back when you call them as relaxed on lead and plays with other dogs and a dog that um, doesn't constantly try and pester and maneuver you. Yeah, I mean, you've touched into something big there with the super nanny. <laughs> I've actually written a book called What the Dogs Taught Me About Being a Parent. Oh, wow. Because there's so many similarities. Yeah. That, you know, we, we, you know, I often think of poor little, I say chihuahuas just because they do, I don't know, I've seen more chihuahuas who seem so stressed out, you know, stuck in handbags, barking and squeaking or they're, and, I, and I'm generalizing here, but there's a lot of little chihuahuas I've been to people's houses. They're racing up and down. They're barking out the windows. They're chasing their tails. They're you're constantly on the go. And because they're little two hours, they get away with it. If it was a German Shepherd, people would be like, there's something wrong with him. Yeah, 100%. At one point in my career, I could honestly say, I've never seen a happy Chihuahua. Oh. And I could say that for like 14 years, yeah. but then I did meet one. Oh. So I can't say it anymore. Uh, I, it breaks my heart. I hear you. I totally hear you. Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, this is the thing. We put so much onus on breeds, but it's really all the variables are the typical human behavior towards a certain breed. You know, a chihuahua growls. I remember a guy holding up a chihuahua and the, and, and he goes like, try and get it. Yeah. Like what I want my chihuahua to do is not bark when people go over and stroke him, not growl. Can you sort that out? I was like, nope, I can't sort it out. You got to, you got to respect his personal space. He doesn't like his, his space being respected. Exactly, because the analogy there is almost saying, I want my child to be okay with anybody coming up to them in the street and just patting them on the head. That's it. That's it. 100%. Right. Wow. They're not going to be, especially not if they're a confident child who goes, get off me, I don't like you. You smell or I don't like the look of you or you're patting me too hard on the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just summed up my child. She's got no problem saying that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in, in a way, a lot of it is almost... we. One thing I'd love to chat about is there's a big, there's a big misconception, I'd say. Um, it's politically incorrect. Well, a lot of people feel it's politically incorrect to kind of talk about being the pack leader when, when you, you know, talk about your dog. Um, people like to say it's more like being a parent, which I totally agree with. So what's your, what's your take on being the leader, being the decision maker? What's, do, you, do you run into problems with, with those, that terminology or not really? It's just a few... Is it more dog trainers who struggle with that? Yeah, I, I do. Um, but the uh, uh, no one's ever be able to prove me wrong. I mean, I, arguments are one with evidence, logic and reason. And uh, people say these very throwaway comments. Yes. And um, I, I've, I've really looked into this subject, to be honest with you. Oh, tell us more. Tell us more. <laughs> I love this topic. Yeah, well, I, I, I'll, put it on, I'll put it out there now. Anybody who can disprove um, what I'm saying... Of, of pack leader theory, I'll give you twenty thousand pounds. Yeah, here's a doggy Dan exclusive. Yeah, and what I'm saying is that, that pack leader theory um, is it, it's been tainted by people who have have um, you know used it as an excuse to dominate and hurt dogs, but that's throwing the baby out of the bathwater. Exactly. So I'm making four general um, statements: that one, it's your job to fulfil your dog's needs. I'm sure you're with me at the moment. Mm -hmm. listeners second if you do not fulfill your dog's needs they will fulfill it themselves therefore that is a dog thinking it's either leading itself or leading you um 
there's actually a couple more statements actually uh, maybe third if you don't communicate to your dog either you're not fulfilling its needs it will think it has to do it itself and i forget the fourth as well but i'm sure you can't argue with those three statements you won't be able to argue with the other one either and it's it, it, yeah it's quite painful sometimes because i've actually lost work from it because people have got oh he he thinks that and i think they get a bit confused with um the language that I may advise more to the principle. The principle really is you've got to show your dog that you provide food and you have power of the food. Well, do you have to eat first before your dog? Well, not necessarily. But if you eat before your dog, that is pretty bloody clear. Like the Queen of England eats first after she's finished and puts a knife and fork down. <laughs> everybody in the room, diplomats and presidents finish. She constantly shows power. Is that right, Nigel? Have you been, have you eaten, have you had a meal with the Queen? Sounds like you've got some inner knowledge. Yeah, well, I... I, I I can't, I can't take a, a first-hand story at it, but I, I certainly know people that have. Yeah. No, no, I totally hear you. And then, uh, you know, another principle is that, you know, we've got to, sh- well, we, we've got to show our dogs that we take care of dangers. We've got to show our dogs that we, we decide when things happen. We've got to show our dogs that when we lead the walk. And I could say the same with kids. We've got, we've got to have power to food, but children will try to take the power to food away from you. Dad, I don't want that. They'll try and debate their physiological needs. I want to go to bed at that time. They might try and provide for their own security needs. They might try and cross roads. And you'd be like, no, 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 you listen to me. They might try and dictate when things happen. So as you've written this book, um, you know, you know, you know the crossover. It's so similar to dogs. Uh, it's uh, dogs and the wolf analogy is so similar to the, the children analogy. And every uh, um, principle I make a comparison with in the wild with wolves, I can make the same comparison with people. Yes. Hundred percent, and so it's it yeah you, you, it's hard to refute, but I think that people get one idea in their head, and it it often it often depends on where you fit on the political spectrum as well. So I think dog training has gone from the far right now to the far left, and the far right is like pinning dogs down and hurting them, and the far left you're just pandering to everything and treating them all the time and treating the symptoms, not the disease, with stuff. And I feel like we're right in the middle with it. We go right, what's your need? I'll, I'll provide for your needs. Listen to me. I'm in charge. And um, I don't think that's controversial subject at all. But welcome to 2022, whatever we're in. And everything's controversial. So, it, it, yes, I've had some, um, you know, some people commenting, but they've never really managed to come back with any of my questions that I've asked. Yeah, I think a lot of it does come down to the words that people use. The terminology is huge. You know, people get triggered by the word leader because they've maybe never had a, a loving leader. I often say, a, a, you know, a good leader is a one who looks after you and cares for you and, and your needs. Yeah, I mean, it just shouldn't be a controversial word. I mean, you know, I remember one person saying, well, you don't have to be a pack leader to your dog. You don't have to be a leader to your dog. And I go, well, what do you mean? You don't have to show your dog that you lead the walk or, or you take care of danger. They go, well, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, you don't have to be a pack leader. Like, What's the difference? Pack's another word for family in the wild. So again, it's the terminology which people get so wound up by. Yeah. And uh, if I think it's trying to look at people's intentions with things as well. It's like, you'll never find me hurting or shouting or intimidating a dog. Um, you'll always find me trying to, make a dog's behavior better but sometimes people can vilify so much and 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 put us in separate boxes and i think that there's things i can learn from other dog training methods totally well i've learned a lot from you already to be honest it's great i've really enjoyed it yeah 
So one of the things I've got to touch on is you mentioned the family and you mentioned the wolves. And something I love is that crossover that if you actually look at, and I know dogs are not wolves, but dogs can breed with wolves and they do operate in a similar way and they fit into our families and they can fit into the wolf pack. And I think one of the reasons is, and I'd love you to touch on this if you can, because I think you know a bit about wolves, is how similar the wolf pack seems to me to be with a family setup. That there's leaders, there's followers, there's, you know, the same basic needs that, and people are taking care of each other. And, you know, people think the wolves are all aggressive and they're not, as I understand it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's obviously differences and there's obviously similarities. And what we've done is we've looked at the similarities and got rid of the differences. So, I mean, I remember one person trying to kind of discount what I was saying, but by saying that feral dogs don't form organized packs and, um, as they don't form organized packs, this means you're talking rubbish because why are you comparing it to wolves when we know that dogs in the wild don't form organized packs and they're more closely related, obviously a, a feral dog to a dog. And I was like, well, okay, what's the, what's the uh, lifespan of a feral dog then? And the fact is, is that a feral dog lifespan is about one or two years. So that's not evidence to say that what we're saying is untrue. That's evidence to say that if you don't follow an organized pack a, a kind of pyramid structure where you have two in charge making the decisions and looking after the youngers it's detrimental it's like looking at lord of the flies and going see those children don't form an organized pack therefore <laughs> what you're talking about is rubbish it's like yeah but let's look at organized th packs that do it well and yeah. learn from that and i think we can learn so much from nature there's a, a quote i use in my book um, from Einstein, the deeper you look into nature, the more you understand about everything. Oh, it's beautiful. And um, it, it's a, there's so many studies of, of, of dog behavior. Um, and anthropology is obviously the study of human behavior and what it's changed. I want to write a book called Canadology. What's that? And write everything that's happened from the wolf, from the <sighs> dog, and, and how people have changed as well. So Canadology would be anthropology for people and the dog stuff mixed in and kind of changed, you know, shown how we've changed. I mean, we've gone from like what our grandparents would have done of like, you know, not making the dog the most important member of the household and fussing and pandering it and giving it treats all the time and then shouting it if it doesn't do it do, do wrong. I mean, my grandparents' dog was so well behaved yeah. and, and my grandparents were, were mildly aloof with it as yeah. well. And I'm sure... Um, you know, in New Zealand, you might be a bit closer to that as well, because in England, we've gone terrible. And, and and just here's a case in point of how much we changed. I got a, a, a message from a person on Instagram pretending to be a dog. And they're like, hello, my human needs help. He can't help it. I'm really naughty. I can't help it. Please help my human sort me out. And I was like, what the bloody hell is wrong with you? And I didn't know how to respond to it. I was like, could you get your owner to give me a call please and it's like how have we gone from like slightly aloof it's a dog to like pretending to be a dog and and it's just it's just such a um a disparity and change and and it really us has changed we, we've changed humans have changed so much uh look nigel i i I've, if people listen who listen to my podcast regularly will have heard this story but this is more <laughs> for you just to summarize what you're saying I had a lady ring me once. She said she had this problem that the dog was barking at night and she said it sleeps in the bed with them and sleeps on her husband's head. And, mm. and she was telling me how the dog barks all the time and she's got a problem. They've done everything they can. And I just stopped and I said, okay. I'm going to be honest with this woman on the phone. I said, you know what the real problem is? She said, no. 
I said, the real problem is your husband has a dog on his head. <laughs> she went, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? I thought okay, it was only a small dog, but can you imagine if it was a German Shepherd? Yeah. I thought, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, the, it's crazy, isn't yeah. it? So I think in summary, can you give us a summary of a summary before we uh, we wrap this up? At what, what's what's really going wrong with the dogs and the dog training, and and how does your method kind of work to to sort it out? I think wherever it's our relationships with people, wherever it's our lack of exercise, wherever it's our diet, we've done so much for convenience, and we've missed the general principle rules that have been around for millions of years like a village to bring up a child let's have communities you know how social media spoils things how inbreeding dogs too much affects things how commercial diets can screw things up how quick fix solutions don't really get to the problem and really we've got to understand that they're dogs they're important members of our family and we've got to spend the time with our dogs the time with our children and get that emotional intelligence back where we're not just doing everything for a quick fix, but we're really trying to get to know the dog and get to know the root of the problem and do what's right for the dog before we start really kind of appeasing what our needs are as well. And I think if everybody starts thinking about the dog as a as, a, as an animal that needs to be respected and the diet needs to be right and we need to communicate to it properly and we need to figure out what it really needs um, and have that you know, that, that insight into really wanting to do a good job, we can't go too wrong. But if we just get a dog because the kids want one and we'll get this breed and we'll do that and we'll get a dog walker, you, 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 we've, you've missed the mark so badly. Um, and that ha- that's terrible. That happens in London all the time. So it's really about just understanding those principles of what we all need for life, healthy food, healthy lifestyles, friends, family, meet our needs and get the dog's needs met simultaneously. And for people who are listening to this and thinking, yep, I love it. Where can I find out more? Where where can they find out more about that stuff you've mentioned and more about yourself and your training programs, the online ones and in person? Oh, so I've got a website called thedogguardian.com. I've got a YouTube channel called Nigel Reed, my name. I've got a book called The Dog Guardian. Uh, I've got loads of videos on YouTube. So I would start by saying, look at the videos on YouTube, see if it makes sense. And I've also got online courses and all other bits and bobs. And if it makes sense, yeah, get into contact with either me or Dan. Yeah, and the I'll put all of this on my website and it'll be under the, uh, the URL, theonlinedogtrainer.com forward slash Nigel Reed which is uh, N-I-G-E-L, is Nigel, and Reed, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's R-E-E-D. That's right. So, guys, if you want any of those links that Nigel's mentioned, if you can't remember them, then you can go to uh, theonlinedogtrainer.com forward slash Nigel Reed, and then you'll be able to find his website, his links, his YouTube channel, all of that stuff. Brilliant. Nigel, I have one thing to say, and it's that I think you should definitely write that book, even if it's not a big, huge, monstrous book. I think it needs to get out there. There's a real need for that, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, thank you. Yeah, it, it can't be too long, but um, yeah, Canadology, watch out for it. Yeah, 
and touching into all those different topics and people, and you could even have links to different places where they could find out more. I'm just coming up with ideas here because that's, <laughs> that's who I be. Yeah. But I just think, yeah, there's a need for it. There's so many areas where we've go so wrong. And if you can kind of, sometimes when you highlight all of them, you go, wow, we really have gone off track a bit here. So mm. I appreciate you coming on today and sharing all your knowledge and, and all the depth of knowledge it's it's been fantastic and really appreciate it so thank you nigel it's been wonderful having you on the podcast show today well thanks for having me and thank you to all if you've made it this far for listening yeah yeah appreciate it all right listeners thank you and as always love your dog you've been listening to another episode of the doggy dan podcast show bringing you one step closer to creating harmony with your dog 